misses. Brock isn't dead. It's just sleuthing. With your host, Willie Whitebread, and Mark Audio Slave Stewart. Welcome back, motherfuckers, to another episode of Rock Isn't Dead. It's just sleeping with yours, truly Willy White Bread. Mark the audio slave. Last week, we had Renegade Rick Lane on with us to do a little bit of the, about the origins of metal, and I think we, uh, we vastly underestimated the size of the subgenres of this group of musicians. It's a lot of talking. It's a <laughs> lot of talking about that metal. A lot of talking about these metal motherfuckers around it's- here. So, uh, we decided to do this week's episode on thrash metal. Let's go into a little bit of what thrash metal is, where it started, what it's about, and what it constitutes. Shall we? Yeah, but we shall do it. We shall. So, thrash metal began in Southern California, and you've got the big four bands. The big four bands, when you hear thrash metal, speed metal, you think of the big four. You think about Anthrax, you think about Slayer, you think about Megadeth, and you think about Metallica. Am I right, or am I right? You are right. Yes. Okay. In case you're wondering where the term thrash metal came from, it was coined by a journalist named Malcolm Dome from Korean Magazine. And uh, one of their issues in 1984, and they were talking about one of Anthrax's song, actually, called Metal Thrashing Mad. It was off one of their Fistful of Metal album. Interesting. So that's kind of where thrash metal came from, which is interesting. And so I guess, I guess thrash metal, the whole, the whole bring about of thrash metal was, uh, it, obviously it was influenced by the bands that we talked about last, uh, last week. Mm-hmm. Deep Purple, Blue Cheer, Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, kind of that... Um, the heavier toned guitars and they just brought it up a notch well they wanted like we were talking about it's it's the same thing that every almost every subgenre other than probably in the last 10 years 5 10 years they want it faster stronger right mm-hmm. that's what they want it faster harder stronger and what was that little quip about that what was that oh that was a uh, uh Kanye West no 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 i'll i'll think of it I'll keep keep going <laughs> And interesting enough, some of the other 70s bands had a little bit of a thrash thing going on. I don't know if any of you guys out there have ever heard this song by Queen, uh, Stone Cold Crazy, off their 1974 Sheer Heart Attack album. Yeah. You've heard that? Oh, yeah. That, that was really, that was said to be one of the first thrash metal songs to ever come out. They, con- they considered hey, that thrash metal. They pioneered it. Yeah, they yeah. pioneered it. Good for them. And funny enough, too, is uh, in the 1990s, I think it was 1992, um, James Hetfield from Metallica actually joined the surviving members of Queen and uh, Tony Iommi mm-hmm. at a Freddie Mercury benefit show. Mm-hmm. Not a, maybe not a benefit show, maybe a tribute show. Probably a tribute. Yeah, yeah. a tribute show. And they uh, they covered that song, which I think yeah. is pretty fucking and cool. And they also put that uh, on the b-side of their enter sandman single cassette that i had bought back really in, back, in the, back in the old when black first came out yeah yeah it was the that was the b-side stone cold crazy wow and it was it was tight yeah it's yeah. And, and it's and you know what and you know what the instrumentals of that song don't sound very different from queen's version and metallica's version obviously there's a little bit more distortion right yeah. but the speed the melodies the bridges the choruses they're all Almost exact. Yeah. And, and which is cool because you would never think a queen would produce something like that. Yeah. They surprised everybody with a, with a lot of stuff. Right. Know, back in those days. Right. Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Yeah. That operatic stuff. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned something last week that I that I mentioned or that I mentioned. Oh, before. Let me stop you. Daft, yeah. Daft Punk was that reference. Daft Punk. That was the reference. There we go. For. There we go. I've, I've never really got much into them. I don't know much about them. They had the, the one of my favorite four-letter words in there, punk, but yeah. uh, I never I never really listened. What, what kind of music are they? Uh, electronic. Like, yeah, that's why I've yeah. never heard of them. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned a band last week that I haven't actually heard much of, Diamond Head, right? No, it would be King Diamond. Oh, King Diamond. That's right. who you were talking about. Right. That's the, one of the founding metal godfathers. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I maybe I got it mixed up, but I looked up a little bit about the band Diamond Head. Have you mm-hmm. ever heard of them? No, I haven't. They were an English metal band. They were formed in, a, I think it was 76, um, and they, they followed along kind of with the uh, the British metal movement. But they, they threw a lot more 
heavy thrashing guitar in there than the other br- uh, British metal guys that were coming through at that time in the in the mid uh, early mid and you know throughout the entire seventies pretty yeah, much you yeah, know yeah. Def Leppard Saxon Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and so, and we're also Raven mm-hmm. Raven was a big influence on them as well and I think it, it was it, it all it all is very interesting to me because I didn't know too much about the metal scene I mean I knew I liked it and all that kind of stuff but I didn't I didn't know kind of the lineage behind it and it's interesting enough that these bands and these movements were doing the same exact thing that you know was happening since the early 60s you know it was the british movement yeah and it was the u.s movement right then it was the u.s movement then it was the british movement mm-hmm. you know they did it with the you know the classic rock they did it with the psycho psychedelic stuff they did it with punk rock right. they like, did it with like, like, it. like we were talking about last week they, they take the uh American bands and send them to Britain mm-hmm. to make it in Britain before they can come back to the States and, and make right. it here. Right. So it was kind of like reverse Britain invasions and that's with American with, bands. That's what they did with Hendrix, too. Yeah, it's kind of kind of weird. Like, it's kind of a little bizarre. Oh, well, if they like you over there, then I guess you can come back and well, like No, here. seriously. <laughs> that's, yeah, right. how, that's how it was. I was watching a bunch of documentaries about thrash metal, and there's this band Hyrax that was doing that. They were mad that they didn't go to Britain. They're like, fuck man, we should have gone to England That's where and recorded yeah. and then came back over here because but over there in England, they were scooping up every fucking thing they could get. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they were coming they through were, hard and fast. They, they, dude. they were, we want American bands here. We want American bands right. touring around England. Right. And yeah. I think it's because they didn't have a blues movement. Like, well, we I don't did. think it was just like they were centered in England, but they probably did like a whole little European tour thing, like small, oh, yeah. small time, you know, tours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Germany, Norway, and all all the metal. Well, that's where a lot of the uh, our our first thrash metal guys that we're talking about, Metallica. That's where they started. That's yeah. where they started. I mean, they did a couple small tours here in the U.S. when Kill 'Em All came out, but uh, for the most part, they were touring over there. Mm-hmm. Especially Megadeth. Megadeth was over there a lot. Yeah, you know. Did you see what uh, Dave Mustaine just said about on on a, an article I saw last night? I guess he's you know because he's got his uh, situation, his medical situation going on. He What's just, wrong with him? He's got throat cancer. Oh, pretty bad. <laughs> Probably from doing that for fucking 30 years. <laughs> well, he was saying like he, he really wished he could get all the years back that he put out on touring and just being on the road because he feels like he, he lost a lot of life. No, he lost a lot of life because he shot fucking $2 million worth of smack yeah, into yeah, his arm over 30 fucking years. Of course. Which is why yeah, he, he lost a lot of life. chain smoked on top of it. Yeah, yeah, don't give me that fucking bullshit. I wish I wouldn't have toured the world with I, all yeah, these fantastic And made bands. all this money. You whiny well, fuck. Well, so what would you rather have done, Dave? Just sat in a gutter and done your heroin? <laughs> yeah, right. You whiny fuck. Everybody everybody gets all self-righteous when something I was just, bad happens to them. I was telling you the, the title of the, of the article that he was... Uh, yeah talking about well there's and we're going to get into this a little bit with megadeth and metallica and stuff like that but like after researching all of these guys the way that i did uh and listening to their documentaries and their you know their interviews and things like that dave mustaine was an asshole yeah that's probably why he was booted from metallica that's exactly why he was booted from metallica he was Mm -hmm. a fucking asshole yeah and they got sick of his violence and his drug abuse and his alcohol i mean the dude couldn't even fucking record yeah you know what I mean? Like, he couldn't even be and then he counted was on. Be, then he was trying to be the, uh, the, the boss of the band on top of it. Mm-hmm. This is my band. Yeah, could you imagine that? Somebody coming in all sloppy fucking drunk. This is my fucking band. Yeah, you dude. You don't like it, you leave. Yeah, dude, you can't even hold down a fucking soda. Yeah. Much less a band. Get the fuck out. You know? Right, right. Get out. But anyway, so moving a little bit forward. Uh, Motorhead. We didn't talk much about them last let time. Let me. Fucking Lemmy, dude. Tell you what, Motorhead was, uh, they, they were kind of like the same time that, that they were getting big, um, the skateboarding was getting big in, in America. Oh, yeah. And all the skaters, all, all they wanted to listen to all day long was punk and thrash metal. You know? I mean, well, you, you op- synonymous. If, if it was 1990, you open a, a, a Thrasher magazine, you would see a giant Motorhead you Yeah, know, Motorhead, available, Ted Kennedy's. Available now, Motorhead, you know. Right, right. So... Like that was a big part of their of their their fan base yeah. was the skateboarders, and I think then. that's really funny too because they were so different yet so much the same that they almost had like a deep rooted hated respect for each other. Right, you know what I mean? Right, they were like, "Fuck you," but I understand you. See, then, then skateboarding <laughs> kind of evolved into what it is today, and now it's yeah. kind of like you know, well, you know, post Malone and yeah, you know. 
Well, back then, a lot of rap man. stuff. Yeah, back then skateboarding was huge. Oh, dude. If you didn't skate, then you were kind of a dork. I mean, yeah. honestly, if you were either a jock, a skateboarder, skate rats, as we call them. Yeah. Well, that was kind of the same even in my era of, of growing up, the late 90s and the early 2000s. That, that skateboarding was still huge, too. Yeah. Like, if you didn't skate, you weren't shit. Like, when I first started skateboarding, it was before the, the skateboard, the decks had the double... You know, sided, sided. Oh, yeah. Uh, you were back in like the Tony Alva and Stacy Peralta days and Correct. Shit. The yes. Lords of Dogtown. That's where you were coming yeah, through. Yeah. My first board was a nuke boy. And it was a picture of this little baby coming out of like a, a hole in the wall. And it was all like punk, you know, like a mohawk yeah. and shit. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it had, it had like rails on the side and a big tail on, on the one side. It was the heaviest shit. Oh, yeah. But it was Pal Peralta. Yeah, Pal Peralta, <laughs> man. That's probably where World Industries, that's probably what World Industries turned into, all that, like, cartoony shit that they used to do. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, man, Motorhead was huge. And, and, and they're actually considered to be the godfathers of the thrash metal scene. That's, they, they were when it really, really took a turn, um, especially in the late 70s, interestingly enough, with their uh, 1979 album, Overkill. That's oh, yeah. the first time that the double bass got commercialized oh no shit i mean i'm sure people were doing it yeah but yeah. nobody nobody was putting it on record and you damn sure weren't buying it in an album at a, at a record store now that was probably the just two bass drums next mm-hmm. to each other that wasn't mm-hmm. the actual double bass not pedal. the double bass pedal no 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 yeah gotcha. no it was uh filthy phil taylor man that was their their drummer and he it was actually on the song overkill okay and, the, and people lost their fucking minds could you imagine that i mean because that's something new man that's yeah. something real new yeah like you're used to that dude do, 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 right, right. shit you know and then all of a sudden you get do, 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 they're like what the fuck <laughs> you know what I mean because that just gets your heart going because right. you know the drummer's the heart of the band so you Def get that Flipper can't do this yeah well he doesn't, he's got two legs <laughs> oh <laughs> just, yeah that's right yeah, he just doesn't have two Def arms Def can do this yeah he can do this he just can't do the the, the thrashing around on the cymbals that as well as he used I to I actually watched a, uh, a little video the other day about him <laughs> and how he uses his drums and it's kind of interesting how many how many like different mechanisms he has to have i'm sure to to compensate for you know a normal drummer yeah i just love that they kept him oh yeah i love that that's that's what being in a band should be all about that's it you know that's the perfect depiction like where you got these guys like megadeth and anthrax and 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 not so much slayer but megadeth anthrax and metallica they were throwing members around all fucking day long especially right. megadeth megadeth had like 16 different members in it well the same was firing people left and right left and right this is my band get out yeah my band get out exactly and to see somebody like hold the family dynamic within the band together like the guys in Def Leppard did. That's yeah. something to respect, yeah. man. Yeah. That's really something cool. And the guy's a pretty good drummer. I mean, there's tons of bands that, that do make it through. I mean, look at the yeah. Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's just all about the brotherhood. And if you if you can tolerate... Basically, I heard some somebody somebody famous, I forget who it was, they said, if you can tolerate somebody for like 90% of the time and not want to kill them, then musically... It will, it will come, you know, if it hasn't come yet, it's, it's going to blossom later. It'll come but naturally. The most important part is, is can you live with that person on the road? That's the right. most important. And can you have fun and go through the hard times? They said if times. you weed through all the musicians out there, you'll find that there's only like 10% of the people left that you can actually live with on the road. Right. You know, so that's how you, that's how they whittle down to, to, for new band members. That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool. Uh, well, I don't, I don't know. There's a whole lot of touring going on in modern music now. Do you think? Oh yeah. Is Grace? there? Oh yeah. It's bands on tour all the time. Is there? What do you mean? I don't mean, I, I just don't feel like it's like it used to be. Ah, uh, you know, like the the family dynamic behind. It. I feel like there's so much technology oh, and so much. Oh, well, yeah. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. I, I heard a. Don't ask me where. I don't remember. But I heard this. Panic at the disco, fucking quip. They're like, well, yeah, he likes to take the plane where they those two like to take a bus, and then this one just drives himself. Yeah, there's no camaraderie. There's a, yeah, that's You're what right. I mean. Not yeah. not a whole lot of touring. I'm sure there's touring, yeah. but there's not like a. It it's wasn't a, like a they, family experience because back then they didn't look at it like a business mm-hmm. like they do today. Mm-hmm. They they looked at it more like you know, let's just go show everybody what we got, you right? Know? And that's what they did, and that's why they're so infamous yeah you know and that's what it takes i guess you just gotta there's one thing to be into music and there's one thing to completely say fuck everything else in my life my life revolves around music right you know what i mean i wake up music i eat lunch music i go to sleep 
music. Right. Friday night comes, not partying, playing music. Partying while playing music. That's all they're doing is playing music, studying music, music theory. That's it. Right. You know, I just don't know if there's much of that around anymore because everything that you hear nowadays has already been done. It's, re- it's kind of like the same in the, in the cinematic sense of like the cinema you see out today. What are, what are, what are the, the you know, big companies, Disney, Sony, what are they putting out? They're putting out shit that already exists, just different renditions of it. Right. It's you know what I mean? Regurgitated bullshit. All regurgitated bullshit. Even Tool's doing that. Even Tool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's going to be our album review. And I got a, I got a couple of fucking things to say about the new Fear Inoculum record. Now, I had a guy about 10 years ago, a buddy of mine, his name is Don, and he was in a band. He created a band called Cypher. Yeah. And what he did is he copyrighted all the songs right off the bat. Everything's copyrighted. So he, he called me up one day, and he, he's like, hey, would you like to be our second guitar player? So, yeah, I was like, cool. So I went, and I did a few jam sessions with him, and we jammed pretty well. And so then he pulled me aside. He goes, hey, would you be able to leave your family and go on tour with us, you know, just like, you know, here and there, you know, for a month or two? I'm like, yeah, I don't see why not. As long as, you know, we're all going to get paid. He's like, well, the thing is, um, we're all not going to get paid the same amount of money. And you're going to get paid this much. And I'm going to get paid this much. And I'm like, well, then I'm not really on board with that. And that's kind of like where where I'm coming from with the, with everybody looks at like more of like a business. Right. Instead of like, you know, being well, just, just being out there and being original. That's another thing, too, with being the new guy in the band. Ver, you know, and you, you well, that, probably that was, make a little that less been, money. That would have been fine. But he he got into the whole thing like, well, all my songs are copyrighted. And so, like, you know, this is this, you know, you'll never make more than this if you join the band for a full fledged member. Like he was going in depth with it all. I'm like, dude. And they they disbanded like probably like, you know, like less than a year later. Yeah. They had T-shirts made and everything. Were they they, big? They were. No, they weren't. He (laughs) he uh, he took it. He took his mommy's money and made a nice album for like eight thousand dollars. Yeah. And then he thought he was going to be big. And. I kind of thought so too. He had like a Billy Corgan type voice, yeah, which was, you know sounded good. And when was this? Oh god, it's probably about fifteen, sixteen years ago now. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, another thing too is it, when you have a family and shit, it's kind of difficult to do stuff like that. Like with these guys, like in Metallica and Megadeth and and all these bands, they started when they were like sixteen years old, right? You know what I mean? And right. they knew that they were going to make something of it by like eighteen, nineteen. Yeah. You know what I mean? They didn't have any bills and shit. Right. You know, to jump into a band in like your mid-20s, late-20s. And then just get like, oh, well, we're, we're going to pay you probably 200 bucks a week, if that. Yeah, well, I got light bills and, and shit. <laughs> right. Like, I got to eat and shit and medical insurance. Like, nah. Well, I'm just glad I didn't jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, no shit. So anyway, so yeah. The, the, Literally, the bandwagon. The bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, pun completely intended. So, yeah, so during the same time, like I said, uh, you know, Motorhead was coming out, and that was the first, th- you know, that was the thrash scene. You know what I mean? You heard right. glimpses of thrash, you know, where they pulled their influences from and stuff like that. But the first, like, this is thrash metal, Motorhead. Motorhead was fucking thrash oh, metal. Yeah. For God's sakes. Yeah, yes. th- that's what they wanted. And, and, and that's what that they were the label of the scene, you know. Right. And so, but see, also at the same time, there's a lot of different mechanics in music, in the music industry going on at the same time that thrash metal was happening, right? Because mm-hmm. you had the glam metal that was going on. Yeah. In the, you know, the mid, late 70s. That was starting to surface, which was a, you know, a rendition. And then that all happened because of stuff like we talked about last week. You know, the showmanship and the theatrics of Kiss and Alice Cooper. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, that met the vocals of the thrash metal guys and the scene of David Bowie and, you know, the New York dolls. Yeah. You know what I mean? All that, you you got the theatrics in there, you got the sound and then you've got the look and all that slammed together. Mm -hmm. Then you got glam metal. Yeah. So you had glam metal going on the same time. And on the other side of the fence, you had the hardcore punk kids, the black flag kids, the dead Kennedys, minor threat. Fugazi. Yeah. Fugazi over here. You know, you had over, them over going there. on over eight, not over eight, over eight. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you had that going on. And so I feel like with the glam metal stuff, the British metal movement. Yeah. And then the punk stuff, mm-hmm. all that combined into one, you mix it up and you drank your thrash metal. And then Lemmy popped out with his moly, moly, moly on his face. Yeah. Here I am. Let's do this shit. Yeah. I feel like they were, <laughs> that, that whole band just got started with a bunch of guys sitting in the backyard, just like, man. Yeah. I'm sick of being a hell's angel. Me too. Let's start a band. Yeah, start a band, <laughs> motherfucker. This shit's dumb. You know, we're going to get killed. Yeah, we're going to get killed or kill killing. <laughs> yeah. Kill getting killed. 
Man, that sounds good. Do it again. So <laughs> that's how I always pictured them starting out. Yeah, that's playing for like Hell's Angels parties and shit. Yeah, they're just out like the drummer just like stops flipping burgers for a second and runs over there. You know, let's put two of these drums together. Yeah. Oh man, that sounds cool too. But uh, so yeah, I feel like that's a, that's exactly how it all began. And then you have a little band that comes out of Southern California, Huntington Beach, in 1981. The Beach Boys? Uh, no, but also funny you should mention that is that was also good for mentioning that. That was a big influence on heavy metal that we know today. Hmm. Dick Dale. Dick the, Dale, love. Dick Dale, King of Surf. King of Surf. He his fucking licks. Who who back then was playing that fast? I don't know. Nobody. But it was horrible the way he went out. Yeah. If you know about that story. Not, not much. Well, he was in his 80s, and it was just last year, and mm-hmm. he was still touring, even though he had stage four rectical, uh, rectal cancer. Rectical cancer. The erectical. The yeah. erectical. But uh, he was forced to tour and forced to do that to, to pay for his meds and his, his hospital visits and all that stuff. So he, he, he couldn't stop touring. Otherwise, he would have died. You know, he would have died a lot sooner. It's kind of sad. And the that beach. Sucks. Go back. Go back to the Beach Boys. Did you know that uh, Charlie Manson tried out for the Beach Boys? No. Yeah. What? He went to Brian Wilson's farm or whatever in California, back when they were looking for another member. What? And yeah, but before the killings and before he went well, completely out of his board. He's not going to be on trial. Hey, and can I join the Beach Boys? He, he did something at the farm. I forget what it was, but it was something that Brian didn't like. I don't know if it was like he, like he pushed a dog away really rough or something like that. He was kind of just like turned off about his, his demeanor. Mm. And so, uh, yeah. Good yeah. call. Yeah. Good call there. Bye, Charlie. We don't want you. Yeah. Great call. <laughs> I'm just, you know what? I was going to, my aspirations led to the Beach Boys, but I think what I'm going to do now is make this 50-gallon drum full of bullshit Kool-Aid and try to get people that to drink was, it. That was, <laughs> that was David What's-His-Face. Oh, yeah, that's right. Manson's the one that created the cult to try to get him, other the, people to kill people. He had people. the women kill, go out and kill yeah, Sharon that, Tate, that whole That's guy. right. Yeah. yeah, I get my killers mixed You're up. You're thinking of Jonestown. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He wasn't the Kool Aid guy. He was the "I'm going to get you to kill somebody" guy. Right. Uh, hey, I didn't tell him to do it. They just wanted to do it. Yeah, that, I mean, that is. Did he actually kill anybody? He didn't. No. So why? How did he go to jail? Because he was the mastermind behind it all, and and the the cult leader and all that shit, and the the, the influence, I guess, on these. I don't know. I didn't know you could go to jail. young women. Yeah, influence. there was a girl a couple years ago who went to jail. Remember, she was on the phone with that, that her ex boyfriend or something, and he was sitting in the oh, car. Oh yeah, told him to like, kill him. Kill told- you should just yeah. do it. And then she went to jail. Did yeah, she you, really? She did. She did like a year and a half, and then she's out now, I believe. But. Jesus Christ. Yep. She, but she's got in, in modern society, shit like that'll fuck you up because you got to yeah. put that shit on a resume. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That's right. Coerced boyfriend into ending own life. Well, I'm, I'm just gonna put felony. Yeah, I'm just gonna. Yeah, I'll just put felony real quick. Yeah, mm. I have my giant jug of water. My God sakes, that thing's huge. I know. That's what they all say. Your jug of water. Yeah. Well, that wow. too. <laughs> but anyway, on so, to the next. On to the next. So, 1981, a uh, little band called Metallica forms in Huntington Beach, Southern California, with uh, founding members James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, Dave Mustaine, and Ron McGovney on bass. Hmm. That was the one thing about. Um, what happened to Ron McGovney? Ron McGovney, he, he got booted in like 82. He decided it wasn't for me. He's like, eh, I'm going to go to college. No, well, yeah, pretty much. He wanted, yeah. to, he wanted to get more into music production okay. than actually playing the music. And so it was kind of like a, it was a mutual thing. It was a, a respected thing. It was like, yeah, I'm right. just going to go, guys. This really isn't for me. Because, right. you know, if you can see anything, and you can say a lot about Metallica, and plus I have, I have a lot of my own different opinions about Metallica and the way that they do things and the way that they've said things in the past. But you, there is one thing you can say about them. Those guys are dedicated to their fucking music. Oh, yeah. That's one thing you can give them. You know, with all the bitching, and so they can act like pussies sometimes, but... You know, they were dedicated to their music. And there was that time in the early 2000s where they were, we're going to break up. Because mm-hmm. Lars doesn't know how to cope with James anymore. Yeah, like, God damn it. Lars and James are, are like a two fucking little kids. But dude. James always seems like the cool one. And Lars always seems like a little bitch. I think that's what it is. Pardon <laughs> yeah. oh, my uh, French. It's past my bedtime. Uh, so, yeah. Ron McGovney, they, you know, he only played with them for like 81, 82. This is like pre-Kill em All. Uh, this is, when, and that's when Cliff Burton yeah, came in. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is when they were still touring in clubs. And, Ron and, Burgundy, no shit. Yeah, Ron Burgundy, Ron <laughs> McGovney. Uh, they were uh, 
that's when they were still playing in clubs and shit in Southern California. Um, so San Diego, San Diego, a whale's <laughs> vagina. And so, so shortly after that, they uh, they they met Cliff Burton at a show. I forget what band Cliff was playing with at the time. I forget. Uh, yeah, it's a band called Who Gives a Fuck. Yeah, right. It was some. Well, I don't know. Yeah, I thought, yeah it might have been. Yeah, it might, might have been a good one. I don't know. I can't. I just can't remember which so one. So he was. left before uh, Hetfield got there. Who? No, Hetfield was founding. No, no, no. I mean, before Mustaine got booted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So he was he was playing with Mustaine very shortly. Okay. Very shortly, and so uh, Cliff Burton actually Metallica played a show. Um. At a, I forget what club it was, and they played with Cliff and his band, and they had been trying to recruit Cliff for like months. Okay. And finally, Cliff was like, "Okay," uh, because he was he mostly played in San Fran and like the Bay Area and shit. Yeah. He's like, "I'll join your band, but you have to move up to the Bay Area, and this is where we jam, because that's where the scene was exploding." I'm the like, Bay Area. Oh yeah, I, mean, I guess that makes sense. That's where all of them, because all these bands started off in Southern California, except for uh, Anthrax. Anthrax started off in New York, yeah. but uh, you know Slayer, Megadeth, and Metallica—they all sl- uh, started in Southern California. Okay. And the big, the big thrash metal movement was happening primarily in the Bay Area of California, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they move up there, they get Cliff, and then things start picking up. They start picking up the tours. They start. Uh, not not tours, but they start playing at the you know at local more more venues yeah more and venues paid more yeah exactly more record executives I'm sure are coming to the shows right and getting right. getting noticed right and that's what that's one night they were playing uh, over there in in San Fran and a concert promoter John Zazula who had, had just recently uh, self financed and formed his uh, a new record company Metal or uh, Megaforce Records okay. Uh, was at one of their shows, and he's like, hey, you guys are going to be a fucking slam dunk. Why don't you sign up with my label, and we'll go from there. And, you know, these young bands, they don't know anything about I mean, they didn't think about the fact that this guy was, you know, self-financed. He's fucking using his dollars. They're just saying, oh, man, we're going to get signed. We're going to get fucking signed. This is it. Yeah, exactly. This is it. And so they signed with the newly established Megaforce Records, which Megadeth also signed with at at a later time, and I think Slayer did as well. I think. Now, is that when Kill 'Em All was was uh, produced? Well, kind of. Is that the Garage Days? So. Yeah, this is this is the Garage Days, and they played for a little bit around local clubs and stuff like that. But then they flew to Rochester, New York, to record Kill 'Em All. Okay. And this is when the rift between uh, Mustaine and the band started happening. Okay. Right. Mustaine Mustaine started coming into the studio. He was very you know inconsistent. And he wasn't trustworthy. Right. You know, they couldn't trust him to come in fucking worth a shit. And so this is where this is where he gets booted. So about the third or fourth time he had come into the studio, they're like, all right, dude, well, you're a fuck up. Like, you can't even hold your shit together to, you know, to record this record. James do the vocals. Right. You're out. Yeah, you're done, man. Like, you're done. And so that's when Kirk Kirk was found in New York. Yeah. Same day. Mm. Same fucking day. Kirk Hammett was playing guitar for Exodus. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was playing guitar for Exodus, and that same afternoon, they recorded, uh, recruited. I know one of Kirk's, Kirk Kirk's uh, main influences was uh, a band called Rainbow. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's a pretty, yep. pretty cool band. If you ever check those out, check yeah. them out. And it's funny, too, because uh, Kill Em All, you know what the name of that album was going to be? <laughs> Metal Up Your Ass. That's that what was, it was supposed to be. That's why they have the T-shirt. Hmm? You never seen the Metallica T-shirts with the with the, uh-uh. knife, the the knife in the hand coming out of the toilet and, uh-uh. and it says "Metal up your ass, Metallica." Mm-hmm. Yeah, it used to be an old T-shirt from the '80s that's, that they used to produce. Oh, that's funny. And now it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was supposed to be called. And the you know the record company, even this one dude, he was like, "Nah, we're not gonna call it Metal Up Your Ass." And so, yeah, kill them. Yeah, kill them all. But there was a lot of tension very early on between Mustaine because Mustaine essentially walked out with that mindset like you see in TV shows and shit like you'll never be anything without me yeah. fuck you I'm yeah. taking my guitar stand you know what I mean All we'll that- see who the bigger rock star is yeah you ever seen that that uh, that movie rock star yeah yeah, yeah that's kind of how it was I'm taking my mic stand that's my mic stand that's that's kind of how it was like Mustaine was pissed wow yeah I mean uh, uh, absolutely understandable furious. yeah and he also accused Hammett of stealing a shit ton of his guitar riffs well, he might have. He he did actually, and funny enough, um, he stole the Four Horsemen. Okay. Dave Mustaine wrote, and all they did was like change the melody up a little bit, and the, yeah. and I think the tuning. 
Right. And Mustaine, there was a huge lawsuit about that. That Mustaine actually won. Okay. Because Mustaine uh, named it Mechanics and re-released it on one of his albums. And Kirk Kirk Hammett, the guitar player who uses the wah pedal, <laughs> way too much. But it sounds good. One of them, master of the wah. He is the master of the wah. Yeah, master of the wah. Somebody else is the master of the wah. Tom Morello. Yes. Him and Tom Morello. Just could you just imagine them sitting at a cookout like just wow 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 wow? Just well, fuck your wow. Yeah, they're just sitting there fucking battling each other like Dragon Force, like that Dragon Force guitar battle. They're just sitting there with two pedals, just. <laughs> staring at each other wow 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 that should be funny as fuck yeah. uh but anyway so 1983 kill em all is released um not a huge success at first no it was it was probably not until the next release then people went back Ride and the bought, that, bought the first one right 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 kill em all wasn't a huge uh wasn't a huge release but they did get a tour out of it uh they were touring with their you know their heroes at the time which were raven and then venom venom is credited with being one of the first origins of black metal yeah. Not Norwegian black metal. Yeah. But black metal. Uh, so they, they were touring with those guys, and they made it to the Ardshock Festival in uh, Zwolle, Netherlands, and they played in front of 7,000 people. And so they got a little bit of FaceTime with that. And like we talked about before, mm-hmm. they started off in fucking Europe. Yeah. And that's when they started picking up speed. And so, you know, it was, it was good. You know, they, yeah. were starting to, they were starting to pick up stuff. Um, and so the very next year... Uh, Kill 'Em All was released in 1983, and then you've got Ride the Lightning, which was one of my favorite albums. Yes, definitely one of my favorite albums. Load and Reload are my two favorite albums, but uh, Ride the Lightning is a close second. Yeah, Master of Puppets and Ride the Lightning. Yeah, all the all the early Metallica. Yeah, after Black, I kind of just went. That's eh. that's when I stopped listening. No, you like Load. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's after Reload. I pretty much stopped listening. I, I stopped. Like after Garage Black. Inc. After and Black, I stopped listening. Death Magnetic and all that. That bowl. They came out. I mean, don't get me wrong. Black is a classic but, album, but they, mm-hmm. they started selling out, in my opinion. When when that after well, that, well, they released. followed the money. Well, yeah. Can you blame them? No, not at all. They followed the money. So with uh, with Ride the Lightning coming out in 1984, they had moved, you know, from their Southern California over to New York. They didn't move to New York, but that's where they were recording at. They uh, moved over to uh, the Sweet Silence Studios in Copenhagen, which is where they started recording uh, I think their next two or three albums um, and so Ride the Lightning came out in 1984 which it was the first time that Metallica made the top 100 album chart list which Fade to Black is a masterpiece oh it's fucking fantastic yeah it's an absolute great song very great song yeah. and funny enough uh, for all you people out there that cr- uh, collect vinyl if you ever come across a Ride the Lightning in green the album is green because they fucked up and printed a bunch of copies. I think it was like 500 to 1,000 copies of mm-hmm. the album in green. What is that worth? A lot of money. I have it. Do you? No. I want it. <laughs> Don't break it in your house. Uh, so, yeah, if you guys come across a green Ride the Lightning album, snatch that bitch and hold on to it. That's like the uh, Led Zeppelin album with, when, when, with the Zeppelin on it. And it's orange, I think. Ah. They made some of those, and that's worth a shit ton of money. Yeah, and then there's a there's a Bob Dylan one that's worth a lot of money too. One of his albums is worth a shit ton of money because they released it wrong, mm. and it was only like a hundred of them. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Dave Mustaine uh, actually received writing uh, credits for "Ride the Lightning" oh. and "The Call of Cthulhu." Good for him. He received with the Cthulhu. That's a great song too. Great song. Uh, and so also another transition for Metallica at this point made the top 100s getting a lot more visibility. They obviously transport or trans, uh, go away from shit ass Megaforce records and go to uh, uh, Electra records. Sorry, we're having a little video snafu. I don't know what's going on there. Whatever, fuck it. Anyway, so uh, they signed with Electra Records. Okay. At this point, right? Which is that's a big that's a big company. That's when you know. Oh you yeah. It. That's when you know. <laughs> yeah. You sign with Electra. It doesn't matter who signed you up for Electra. Electra is the that's one the company. jam, dude. That's, that's the diamond. That's the jam. So after that, um, we'll move a little bit f- faster on Metallica. Um, that's when they really blew up. They started touring with uh, more of their heroes, Wasp, Armored Saint. Um, and they also played the Monsters of Rock Festival in Donington Park, England, on August 17th, 1987, with headliners Bon Jovi and Rat in front of 70,000 people. Yeah, fucking Bon Jovi. Everybody in New Jersey just jizzed their pants in unison as soon as they heard that. Trust me, I lived it. <laughs> <laughs> I lived through that period in New yeah. Jersey. Yeah. 
Um, and so my, uh, aunt, my aunt would come home and be like, oh my god, a friend of a friend of a cousin of a friend knows John, and she, we're gonna be able to meet him. You believe that? You're gonna take me to meet John Bon Jovi? I'm like, uh, what? Cool. Let me know how it is. <laughs> she never met him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. And so after this, uh, they did that that 1987 tour, <clears throat> and so they, um, but a little bit before that, they started working on Master Puppets at once again in Copenhagen at the uh, Sweet Silent Studios. Master of Puppets drops in 1986, spends 72 weeks on the top 100 charts, and is six times platinum by 2003. Beast. Fucking. Beast mode. Beast. And so they started touring again at the Master of Puppets tour, and this is where shit really takes a turn. Because this is when they're in Sweden. They're going through Sweden on their tour bus, and all the band members are sitting there. And, you know, James, Lars. Cliff. Cliff. Yeah, James Lawrence Cliff and uh, Kirk. Yeah, that's right. Uh, they're just sitting there <laughs> drawing straws for bunk positions. Right. You know, they're sitting there like, all right, man. Well, because they used to play magical bunks or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And uh, so Cliff won, and he got to pick whichever bunk, bunk he was sleeping in. He chose Kirk's. And so sometime in between 2 and 3 a.m., the bus driver loses control. The bus rolls over. Everybody makes it out, but Cliff is pinned under the bus. What a bad twist of fate. Yep. Killing him. <laughs> Killing, yeah, squishing him dead. So that was a huge That was a huge hit, obviously. Everybody loves Cliff Burton. Cliff Burton's fucking awesome. Yeah. I thought he was a fantastic oh, bass yeah. player. Of course. Um, so moving forward from that, they started interviewing 40 other bass players. Uh, they finally landed on Jason Newstead. And he was out of a band called Flotsam and Jetsam, which is actually a pretty good band. I listened to a little bit of their stuff yesterday while I was working in the yard. They're they're a pretty good band. Yeah, okay. You ever heard of them? No, I've never, no, I've never listened. Mm. They're pretty good. So after that, they start working on Injustice for All, uh, which is the first album without Cliff Burton. Another amazing album. Fucking great album. Harvester of Sorrow and One. Every, every fucking phenomenal. song on, on the whole entire thing. Yeah. Fucking phenomenal. This is also the first time that Metallica's seen on TV because One was their first music video. And that dropped on MTV. So now they're on screen with everybody in America looking. And that's where they really started picking up momentum. Mm. That's where they started getting real big. And so we'll... uh, we'll, that's when James will start to get real drunk. Well, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's shortly... That was in 2001 when he started getting real fucking shitty. That was when Jason Newstead left the band. Oh, Jason Newstead left in 2001 uh, because they he wanted to start doing. And some that was side when projects. Lars and him started getting into it about his drinking. That's and, right. Yeah, that's right. And James was like, I don't know if I could do this sober. And Lars was like, Well, I don't know. I don't know. We're not going to do anything ever again with you. I'm Lars. <laughs> well, I kind of get it though, man, because like I've always said that it's got to be hell being like a heavy metal musician. Yeah. Be- because like, how do you do that sober? Right. Get into that mindset. Like, like how? Not only that, but you have to go in front of millions of people every night. And that's kind of just like your go-to ritual to to, to give you that liquid courage. Self-medication. Exactly. Because, I mean, like, if you're... Even Mick Jagger, to this day, I saw him in in an interview. He he still throws up before he goes out on stage. Does he really? He does. Yeah. Wow. It's just nerves. You know, you you, you can't get rid of the stage Now, like, if you're somebody like Eric Clapton or something like that, you can go out on stage sober and just sit here and jam like you would in your living room or your your garage. You mean... It's well, not, it depends on who you are. I mean, right. you know. But yeah, but he was really bad, too, for a long time. For a long time. Yeah, but, like, just this thrashing heavy metal music, I'd imagine that you've got to have a little bit of something, and especially in your young days. You've got women throwing themselves at you. You've got all these tours for, you're on. For me, there's a, I mean, blues, like Clapton, you can kind of, like, wing it if you're drunk. But if you're if you're in a heavy metal band, like for me, I can't play metal after I've been drinking because the timing it all comes down to the, their timing. And if right. You, if you can't, get, you know, that's why you. I don't think Kirk Hammett was a big time alcoholic. I doubt it. He might have did a shot or two, like you know, before the show. But yeah, he doesn't come out. You know, I can't play guitar drunk. I can't play worth a shit. I can play slower stuff. I just you know, but not like you know, like you're saying, like you know, yeah, all that real fast tempo kind of stuff. No, nope. Um, so yeah, that's when uh, Jason Newstead left the band in 2001 because Hetfield and Lars wouldn't let him pursue his own interest, and that was also in uh, uh, when Hetfield joined Rehab. He was in Rehab mm-hmm. for five months, and they were also while he was in Rehab, they were filming a documentary called Some Kind of Monster, 
Right. And I've seen that before. Yeah. And then that's where you kind of see the riff that they're that they're having throughout the band. Yeah, and that's where it kind of changed. One one sort of interesting thing I mentioned my two favorite albums, Load and Reload. You ever seen the album art for those? Mm-mm. No. The, the album art it looks like a um, here. Let's pull it up real quick. It looks like a like a lava lamp type. Uh, I, I mean, as the cover you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I just I never like really looked at it. I just said that's a stupid looking cover. That, that right there. <laughs> yeah. You know what that is? What is it? That's a mixture of uh, one of their friends, Andrew's jizz and cow blood pressed between plexiglass. See, and I always looked at that like, why do they pick that? I yeah. never, I never really like inquired like, why do they pick that? I yeah. was kind of like, oh, that's stupid looking. And reload was a mixture of blood and urine. Well, they're pressed re- between plexiglass. Reload knows, uh, that's, that's, that's disgusting. I thought it was fucking hilarious. That's pretty metal pretty fucking metal dude it's original yeah but uh moving forward a little bit we'll start speeding like i said through metallica uh 2003 saint anger's released and got shit reviews yeah saint anger got fucking horrible horrible reviews right i liked it okay yeah i didn't didn't mind it it wasn't my my favorite thing no i mean at least they were they were trying to go back to their their garage roots i think that's that's what they were doing in that album yeah i think garage inc came out in 1998 when did that movie come out that they did you ever see that movie that they made up in canada in that big ass uh coliseum Mm -hmm. that fucking movie killed the never that was such a fucking good fucking concert flick, dude. I, I love it. that movie. Yeah, it's fucking it's great. So original. Yeah, and I love the, that. And the stage sets yeah. were amazing in that fucking movie. Fucking fantastic. Man. That's probably one of the best concert DVDs or you know concert you can actually see. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. I thought it was great. Yeah, it was great. I thought it was it fucking was. fantastic. It was, it was a surprise the shit out of me. And then they had a little side story yeah, yeah. about the kids. Stuff. Yeah. Running around with the guy and the horse, hanging people and yeah, shit. Yeah, I mean, it was just a yeah. really good, well-made mm-hmm. movie. Yeah. And in the very beginning, James Hetfield drives by in one of his hot rods and shit. Yep. Looking yep. at the kid. Like, man, See, that's I cool. think that's what they wanted some kind of monster to kind of be, but they didn't know that at the time. But then they were right. like, this is what we want. Right. Through the never. Right. Right, exactly. And so also, um, more notably, in 2003, uh, they picked up former Suicidal Tendencies bassist uh, Robert Trulio. Right. Which, that guy's fucking badass, dude. And in that movie, when he's in that room, and the room's shaking, and he's yeah. playing the bass, that's so cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I watch him play bass, and I'm like, there's nobody in this world that can play bass that low. That dude's damn near doing a split. Right. And there's also nobody in the world who has to worry about actually breaking a bass string. Yeah. He probably is one of them with his gorilla fingers. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even think about that. He's such a big dude. Yeah. He's like a fucking, like a a wrestling superstar. He looks like uh, Brandon Small from fucking Death Clock. He looks like, you ever seen that that fucking show, the cartoon show Death Clock or Metalocalypse? Yep. He's all big and fucking brutal with long hair. That's what fucking Robert Trulio looks like to me. Motherfucker's badass. So anyway, so what Metallica chose to do, Vice, all the other bands, is they decided to chase commercial success. Uh, they didn't. They got a lot of harsh criticism from their thrash metal following. But then again, that was a smart thing because thrash metal was dying. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Thrash yeah. metal was a dying scene. That was an underground thing. And you can't be selfish and, tell, and say somebody's going to sell out when they're, you know, that's how they pay their fucking bills, man. Yeah. And were they selling out or were they just progressing their music? That's what I think. They were progressing you know, their they music. They were slowing it down a little bit. You know, they started doing it in the Black Album. You really can't say that the Black Album was thrash metal. Well, what they were doing is they were targeting all audiences. You really can't say, to me, you really can't say after Kill Em All was completely thrash metal on all their albums because they did have some certain qualities that they lost. Oh, I think Kill Em All was their only true, true thrash metal true album. True thrash, right. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I completely yeah. agree with you 100%. I mean, Suicide Tendencies did the same thing. They were mm-hmm. super thrashy, and then when the Art of Rebellion came out, it mm-hmm. was super melodic, which I love. Right, because like I said, what these bands were doing that actually, you know, because you had bands that were actually, you know, they, they wanted to play music because they, you know, this is, the, this is my genre. I'm punk. This is what I'm going to do. Right. You know, you had those bands and then you had bands that, I like this music. This is what I'm going to play, but I'm going to make this my career. Right. You know what I'm saying? And that's what Metallica did. They, they followed, uh, they, they didn't want to stick themselves in a box. You know, like we're going to we're going to yeah. play music that everybody can enjoy. One band that comes across as kind of a little stuck in a box, but they still sound great is Bad Religion. Oh, yeah. They're right up in the box. They're so in the box. They're in the box. They, they sound great. And, they, and they, but they, it's funny because every album, all the songs sound different. Right. It's the same 
Yeah, sound. Same sound. Right. So along the same times uh, as as Metallica starting, obviously, like we said, uh, Dave Mustaine got booted out of the band. He uh, he formed uh, Megadeth right after that, after arriving back in L.A. with his bandmates David Elfson and uh, Greg Handevitt. Uh, and, and like I said, these guys were the kings. Well, Dave Mustaine was the kings king of firing motherfuckers and hiring motherfuckers and firing motherfuckers and all of this kind of he shit. Was thinking that, oh, I just got to sort through all the bad ones till I find a, a diamond in the rough that's going to, you know, be the, right. be, be the musician that I want him to be. Right. Trent Reznor was the same way. Oh, I'm sure. With all, all his hiring and firing. That's why the guys, uh, two of his bandmates, left him for filter because they, they got sick and tired of his shit. Right. Well, when he's got a particular sound he wants, he's got a particular sound well, he wants. It's different. Well, it is the same. It's the same with Dave Mustaine because it was his music and he wanted it performed probably in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And if it wasn't up to his standards, get the fuck out of here. Right. So, exactly. I, mean, I don't blame the guy. That's just the way he was. But I also think Mustaine was very, like, if delusional. You to, yeah, delusional. <laughs> yeah. Like, if you combat me on anything, because it's one thing to be, you know, be focused on your music like James Hetfield was. And there's another thing to, you know, be have the inability to consume creative criticism. Yeah. You know, because I imagine for, through readings and looking at interviews and things, it's if, I, if he went against me at all, I, they were fucking fired. Right. Or if you I heard I mean? or he was talking behind my back and I Red found fired. out about it, fired, fired, mm-hmm. fired. Right. Well, so, you know. Yeah, whatever. Whatever. That's how he, that's how he operated. So. Well, whatever. Um, so 1985, uh, they dropped Killing Is My Business and Business Is Good. Yeah. That was a huge thrash metal hit. It was. That was huge amongst the thrash metal guys. Um, at this time, they all had... All the dirty burners were buying that. All the dirty burners. <laughs> uh, they, they signed on with uh, Combat Records, which was a new, another New York-based record company. And Mustaine was pissed about the, the money that they gave him to record the album. They gave him eight grand to make the album. Mm-hmm. And Dave Mustaine spent half of it on drugs, alcohol, and food. Four mm-hmm. grand. Four, four grand of the fucking album money. To, if this is any indication with what the, where they were doing at the time, because these motherfuckers were partiers. Megadeth was partying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and a lot. Of, I mean, don't get me wrong; they were great musicians, but they had the catchiest album art. Right. Every kid was like, "What's that?" You know. Yeah. Well, that was uh, that was what was it? Vic Rattlehead. Yeah. Then I didn't. I knew. Yeah. They, Vic there Rattlehead. There was Eddie from Iron Maiden, and then yeah. Vic Rattlehead. Vic Rattlehead. Megadeth. Yeah. yeah. He used to come out on stage with them. Yeah. Every now and again, Vic Rattlehead come over and hang out. And well, he probably saw Iron Maiden. He said, "Well, we got to get ourselves an Eddie." That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. that's what I thought too. I was like, "That's very Iron Maiden of you." Yeah. <laughs> very chins- but, uh, it's very chintzy of you. Yeah, right. Dave. But on this first, on their first album, uh, "Killing Is My Business" and "Business Is Good," uh, like we talked about before, the Four Horsemen that Metallica put down was actually a Dave Mustaine written song, uh, and so there was a big legal thing of you know, about the rights to the song and Dave Mustaine won and they re-recorded it as mechanics hmm. on this that's album. In, that's interesting. Yeah. They got, they got writing credit for, uh, writing credit for it. So after that album dropped, they went on their first North American tour with a Canadian speed metal band called Exciter, which they're pretty good. They're yeah. Pr- they're pretty badass band. Yeah. Um, in the thrash scene, cause Megadeth held true to the thrash stuff. They did. They held true, but that's par- partly the reason why they never super exploded. Like Metallica did. Right, because they never broke out of that that thrash metal right. standard. Now, Megadeth is famous in their scene. Oh yeah, they're head of the class. Right, them, you know, and so and, and it's also Anthrax. Well, Anthrax went. Well, they they got a little bit bigger with their Public Enemy stuff. When that's they what started I'm saying. They Public branched Enemy. out. Yeah, they branched out a little bit. But I would say Slayer and Megadeth are the two bands that actually really held true. Because you right. see what Slayer did. We were talking about. Um, their, their, their second or third album that they dropped, they slowed it down just a little bit. Right. And they were like, they got blasted about it, so they turned the fucking heat right back up. Well, Dave Mustaine kind of did the same thing when uh, Symphony of Destruction came out. Right. You know, there was a couple songs on there. Great song. Oh, Great yeah. album. My favorite song by him is uh, A Secret Place. Mm-hmm. Love that song. Great. And he's a fantastic guitar player, too. Oh, yeah. I remember when I was a kid, man, when I was like, like probably seven or eight years old, the only thing in this world that I wanted was a Dave Mustaine flying V, a Dean Dave <laughs> yeah. Mustaine flying V. Right. I wanted it so fucking bad, white with the gold inlay. Yeah. I'll never forget it. Yeah. I think flying V's are ridiculous now, but uh, I, yeah, <laughs> they're really ridiculous guitars. Or the Dimebag Daryl, yeah, more ridiculous, the <laughs> most ridiculous. Dean flying V. Yeah, that is the most ridiculous. But yeah, I always wanted one of those. Uh, so this is also after that, like I said, after. Uh, 
after they're uh, killing is my business and business is good. They go on tour a little bit and then they drop their second album, which was their big one. They dropped that in late, uh, late 86 peace sells, but who's buying, right? That was the big one. That was the monster. Vic was on the cover. Vic was on the cover doing his thing. Uh, and once again, there's something to be said about them because they were staying true to their thrash metal roots. Yep. Right. And so while on tour, uh, with their album, their peace sell, who's peace sells, but who's buying, uh, they were on tour with uh, Alice Cooper in 87 on the Constrictor tour, and they started going through a shit ton of personnel changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, an absolute ton. Uh, their drummer Samuelson, was, uh, he was getting too hard into drugs. His guitar player, Chris Poland, was accused of uh, selling the band's equipment to buy drugs, so they were both fired, and then uh, Chuck Bueller became the band's full-time drummer at that time. What they don't tell you is that Dave Mustaine ordered them to do so and then yeah. fired them the next day. Yeah. He was, a, yeah, he was fucking banging What do you drugs. mean you sold our half stacks? Yeah. Told, told, <laughs> You're fired. Told him to go do it. Oh, I told him to do that, didn't I? Was all geeked out on heroin and fucking fired him <laughs> for it because he forgot. But uh, so, yeah. And then the very next year, they were pumping albums out fucking left and right. They yeah. were killing it. Uh, 88, they dropped uh, So Far, So Good, So What? That was a that was a mediocre success, but Mustaine was starting to struggle with his drug addiction pretty, pretty heavily at that did, time. Wasn't Rust in Peace? Wasn't that <laughs> one of them? Yeah, that was their that that dropped in 1990. Okay, yep. And then Symphony of Destruction. And then Symphony. Yep. So Rust in Peace was uh, was number two on the United States charts and number eight in the UK. So they got a mm-hmm. they got a pretty good amount of of uh, fan base from that. They got a you know a good amount of publicity for that album not as much as their previous two but right um that and i think it was indicative of his drug abuse that was falling into the music mm-hmm. um but on that tour that's when they they joined uh slayer testament and suicidal tendencies for the clash of the titans european tour which is fucking badass yeah dude that would have been sick god how many, how many pregnancies do you think happened <laughs> yeah. how many people went to the hospital <laughs> yeah. and, and and even so so we're talking about 1990 this is when the quote unquote grunge scene was mm-hmm. coming on the scene and so Alice in Chains started touring with them yeah they started touring because they did an, an American leg of the Clash of the Titans tour and they did that with uh, Slayer and Anthrax and Alice in Chains was I the think, opener uh, Anthrax did a tour with, with White Zombie as well did he? yeah that's pretty fucking rad well I think we're going to have to get into Anthrax and Slayer next week no doubt yeah I think so no doubt Base, how low can you go? Halfway, <laughs> halfway. So yeah, uh, moving a little bit uh, further with with and finishing up with Megadeth. Uh, these guys came out with a lot of a lot of great albums. I think they had twelve studio albums after Rust in Peace came out in nineteen ninety. They had Countdown to Extinction in nineteen ninety two, Euthanasia in nineteen ninety four, Cryptic Writings in nineteen ninety seven, Risk in ninety nine, World Needs a New Hero in two thousand one. The and system has failed in 2004. Let's just say the blah, record, blah, 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 the record blah, 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 sales kind of went they, down they a were, notch yeah. since Countdown to Extinction and what they, I'm sure they went down. But down, I'm down. telling you, man, for like a, like a 20 or 30 year span, a 30 year span, these guys didn't go more than three years without dropping an album. Yeah, because bills need to get paid. They need to go on tour. The tours generate the money that they to sustain the Mustang. The sustain the Mustang in the main vein of the Mustang. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, like I said, uh, we're gonna get a little bit more into Anthrax and Slayer next week. Uh, and Slayer and Anthrax, they had a huge. Uh, they had a very huge uh, depiction on the scene. They were the greatest. They were the absolute greatest. There was nothing any better. It's gonna be big, real big. Huge. <laughs> Huge. Uh, so we'll get into them a little bit next week. Uh, and I think Anthrax, something cool about them. I always loved that uh, that work that they did with Public Enemy. Yeah. That was fucking cool. And that was on the uh, soundtrack for Judgment Night. And that was also on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. <laughs> it also was on the soundtrack for Judgment Night when it released. Mm. That's where it came from. Well, that's cool. There was a lot of cool songs on that. The Judgment Night oh, yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. Anthrax, and, and like we said before, Anthrax, they, they stayed pretty tight with their thrash metal roots. They branched out a little bit, but they always came back. Yeah, they pulled the reins in real quick yeah. after that album. They pulled the reins in real quick. And, uh, you know, Slayer did the same thing. I'm the man. That's my favorite Anthrax. I'm the man. I'm the man. 
Yeah. So South of Heaven from uh, from Slayer, they did the same thing. They released, you know, Show No Mercy, Hell Awaits, Rain and Blood, which was a fucking smackdown hit. And then, uh, you know, South of Heaven, that's when they slowed it down a little bit. They got a lot of scrutiny for it and then picked it back up with their next album in 1990, Seasons of the Abyss. Yeah. So we'll get into the, those cats a little bit more next week. Um, so let's talk about, in our album review of the week, let's talk about Tool's Fear Inoculum. Hmm. What do you think about it, Mark? Uh, I think they're, t- they're talented musicians to I this didn't day. think what you think about them personally. What did you think about the album? <laughs> <laughs> well... I uh, wanted to love it, and I ended up barely even liking it. Yeah. Just, I just feel like it, they regurgitated a bunch of their old stuff to make money. I think that they said, hey, yeah. you know what? Let's, let's, uh, <laughs> let's release all of our streaming stuff, all of our albums, and, and then we'll mm-hmm. get tons of money. But then on top of it, we'll release a new album, and then we'll just, you know, we'll just kind of like, you know, reprocess some of our old album fuck stuff and, and fuck it. And, and then we'll <laughs> go on tour, and we'll make a lot of money. I think you're exactly right. Because they are about business. Those guys, maybe not 20 years ago, but today it's all about making money. Right. And the one thing I did like is the the typical tool fashion is the whole album sound like one continuous song they all, all the all the they, songs they added a little bit of the synthesizer corny ass yeah. shit yeah and and that the third song on the record uh, that's a french name uh, Latani contre la pure or whatever it is i thought that was fucking ridiculous it was a ridiculous transition yeah um and and so what well, i'll say it was it was a good it was a good album as far as production you know and when i need to clean my bathroom or something i'll put it on you know, when I'm not sitting there focusing on it. A However, of, a, a buddy of mine today said, uh, you didn't like that fear. I, 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 I not call them. I not call them. You don't <laughs> like that. I mean, you inoculum, you fucking, fucking Moran. Moran. Uh, so my, my assessment of it for what it's worth is I appreciate the effort and streaming your songs. I think you're exactly right. Like I said, I appreciate the album itself and what it is. But I do feel like it's lazy. Mm-hmm. There is no hard-hitting vocal singles. Not saying every album needs a single, but it's indicative in Tool's nature to have at least one or two hard-hitting vocal breakdown singles on an album. Mm-hmm. There was none of that. There was a lot of build-up for nothing. I think it was very lazy, and I think it sounded like a seaside track or a seaside to uh, Lateralis. That's correct. You know what I mean? It's the same guitar riffs and drum lines that I've been listening to for 20 years. Yes. Nothing different. Really, nothing different. Nothing that's, different that's at all. That's exactly how I thought about it. It was just a, it was like a sad face blowjob or I a I wish we had our friends job, Drew was, and Mike Martinez here because those guys would, would, would argue a point because we're kind of one-sided on the subject. I, I would like to have somebody else to bounce off of. So in, in the future, if we get one of those guys to do a guest uh, host with us, we will vi- revisit the, the fear tool. inoculum yeah the fear inoculum album uh and also if you guys have any feedback on it feel free to email me at willie whitebread uh 69 at gmail.com we can talk back and forth a little bit about it but like i said i feel like it's lazy it left a lot to be desired and it just wasn't typical it was too typical tool for me they're milking that cash cow for all milking the name and it took it took too fucking long to write for it to be that shitty yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say shitty. It's not a shitty it's, it's album. Saying, it's, it's disappointed. Exactly. And, and Tool fans will be like, oh, it's so technical. And that's their sound. That's their signature sound. Yeah, but it's the same sound. It's the same riffs. It's the just, same riffs. Just, just in different, you know, backwards or mixed up. Right. Know, it was, it was, to it me. It was disappointing. It was very, lazy. Very disappointing. Right. So anyway, uh, I also wanted to do a little quip. Uh, there's a new music store over here in, uh, obviously you guys know that we record in Jacksonville, Florida. I live over here in the Murray Hill region. There's a new record store that just opened up. Oh, I should say record store and vintage audio gear and equipment store that opened up at 807 Edgewood Avenue South. It's called the Murray Hill Music Factory. Uh, I've been in there probably three or four times in the last week since I found it because it's actually a real fucking record store. Not one of these, oh, it smells good, and there's just nicely placed everything, and all the vinyl is nice and brand new, and I'm going to charge $35 for a brand new print. No, this is a real record store with original prints, all original vinyl, and, and these guys probably have the most extreme vinyl collection I've ever seen in my fucking life. And for great prices, I picked up a copy of uh, Janis Joplin's Pearl and an original uh, self-titled Bad Company record for about 20 bucks. Uh, you know, the guy's a... Uh, 
the, the technicians there, Randy and Will. Uh, Randy's a certified luthier. He's been there for 45 years. They've got vintage Gibsons on the wall, vintage Fenders. They've got all sorts of vintage harmonies and a great selection of you know, uh, acoustic and electric guitars as well as amps and everything like that. And he'll work on your vintage electron- electronics too, which is very difficult to find somebody that'll work on vintage electronics. So I just wanted to give those guys a little shout out because they're a real record store and I appreciate them being in the area. So next week, guys, we're going to go a little bit further into the origins of thrash metal. We're going to go into anthrax. We're going to talk about Slayer and then we're going to move on a little bit forward from that to the power metal scene, the new wave metal scene and all things pertaining. So stay tuned for next week, guys. As always, we love you. Come on back. Looking forward to it. Later.